0: Good to see everybody. Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started here. Now, you're, uh, you're looking at the passage of Scripture that we're studying uh, together, which is the book of Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. We want to finish that today and then transition to chapter <clears throat> 4 through 6. Uh, let me make a couple of comments here by way of introduction and if you look at verse uh, twenty, uh, verse fourteen of chapter for, chapter three, for this reason. Now, um, if you go back to chapter three, verse one, uh, you remember—at least I hope you remember—that Paul begins a prayer in chapter three, verse one, and then goes on this bunny trail on the mystery of God's grace, that Jew and Gentile are equal in the new covenant community, and so on. And that he is a minister of the new covenant community of this mystery of Jew and Gentile, etc. So we we've dealt with that. So the only reason I'm saying that is this picks up with where he started in verse one, and so now verse 14 through verse 24 is a prayer, and it is really one of the more marvelous prayers of the New Testament. But uh, I've given you uh, Joel sent out some uh, PowerPoint slides that you, I hope, were able to open or at least have access to or whatever, but you have a copy of this slide, which is a quite helpful way to break the prayer into its respective parts, because Paul is praying a three-part prayer. Part one is that they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit and inner self. Part two, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Part three, that they would have the strength to, and there are two infinitives there, to comprehend and to know. So, again, you have a copy of this in the slides that Joel sent to you earlier this morning, I believe it was. But anyway, this helps you to be able to sort out what is a complicated prayer. Because when you read it here in the text or in your Bible that you have in front of you or however you're looking at it, I mean, it's hard to sort through all this. But again, I'll show this one more time, and you do have a copy of this. This helps you to be able to sort out the structure of the prayer. And if you, if you can't sort out the structure and understand it, it doesn't mean anything to you. So that's why I'm trying to help here to be able to discern what is the exact structure of the prayer. What is he praying for? So one more time, it's a three-part prayer that they be strengthened with power through the Spirit, Two, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And three, that they would have the strength to do two things, and they're both infinitives, to comprehend and to know. So we're going to take this apart now. That's the structure. And again, you have a copy of this, so you can look at this again and again and again if you study it uh, beyond our class. So as as I said, for this reason, Paul is now continuing or picking up where he left off in verse 1. I bow my knees before the Father. And this is not unusual in the New Testament, but it's somewhat unusual in Paul's writings, where he is specifically addressing his prayer to the Father. Then he adds something from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so to to try to figure out, excuse me, what does he mean by this? The idea of the Father is not a problem, but from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. I thought about that a lot. I did a a bit of reading on it. There's nothing complicated about it in the original language. But Paul does seem to say that that the Father is the prototype of all fathers, who also has sovereign, um, who also uh, is the sovereign with authority over all things. But as our Heavenly Father, for you and me as Christians, to have put our faith in Christ and we're in the family of God, to address God as Father is an inestimable privilege. It's, it's a remarkable honor and mark of our fellowship and intimacy with God. But he is also the prototype of all fathers. And that's one of the tragedies for those outside the faith, those who have rejected the grace of God in Christ, that the, the idea of God as Father is a foreign idea to them. I may have mentioned this to you. Um, if, if I did, hopefully it won't be something that will be terribly boring to you. But my wife's father left um, her mother, um, his wife, for another woman when Peggy was a young girl. And so she always had a difficult challenge trying to understand what is a good father? Because her father, he basically cut off all ties with them. She virtually did not see him, I think once or twice only, but after he left and never had any contact with him for the rest of her life. He died. Uh, they did not know he had died. They found out about it later. And when I'm saying all that, because one of the things she says is that when she came to understand God as her heavenly father, it transformed her whole understanding of what father really means. And that's one of the tragedies. God is to be a prototype for what it means to be a father. But until and unless you put your faith in Christ, you're never going to realize the power and significance of that prototype of God as our father. And you've heard me say many times, before we put our faith in Christ, our relationship to God is one of judge versus condemned sinner. We put our faith in Christ, it's now child to Heavenly Father, which is a fantastic transformation. And so Paul is just reminding his readers in Ephesus and reminding you and I 2,000 years later of how important it is to be able to address God as Father. And so he knows that intimacy as, as Paul. He knows that intimacy And he's relating that. So given that, he then goes into the main part of his prayer, beginning now in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, grant to you. And then here is part one of his prayer. As I've said now, it's about the fourth time. There are three parts to this prayer. But please note how he introduces this. Uh, I've talked about this before, but when you see that little word, according, that's translating a Greek preposition, "kata," but it's the standard. So the standard for the riches uh, or for the the power that he wants us to understand is according to the standard of the riches of his glory. That is the riches of the glory of, of God. And more about that later on here in this prayer. And so he says, and if you want to look again at this chart, which I think helps us to understand, the first part of the prayer, rooted in the standard of God's glory, is that we would be strengthened with the power, with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So let's take that apart. First, through his Spirit. That's obviously the Holy Spirit, And when you become a Christian, you put your faith in Christ and begin that relationship. As you know, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. We are now the new temple of the living God. And and all that is a part of the crucial role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. But He's tying the presence of the Spirit with power. Okay, now that is not a new concept. That's not a new teaching. It's all over the New Testament jesus says if you go back to acts chapter one he's going back to the father he's going to send the spirit and then that spirit will empower the 12 disciples and then through the teachings of the rest of the new testament empower us who with whom the holy spirit takes up residence so this is that supernatural power according to the riches of god's glory that's the standard this is the supernatural power and so That supernatural power, which comes through the Holy Spirit, enables us to be strengthened. And that word strengthened is a a term often used and associated with military power. Now, obviously, it's not military in the sense of an army, but it's that kind of dynamic, awesome power. But he wants this power directed at something. And this is what's somewhat unusual in your inner being." And so the, the Apostle Paul, well really all New Testament um, the writers, and even including Jesus in the Gospels, ties that power of God, that resurrection power of God, to overcome sin, to deal with our enemy Satan, etc., all of that. But he's using it in another sense, which also is consistent with the New Testament, Strengthen in your inner being, which is sort of an an unusual way to, to talk about his point, your inner being, because that sounds kind of mystical. What does he mean by that? Well, let's think about it in this way. God is interested in his process of transformation, which we call sanctification, transforming us from the inside out. Uh, the the, the S- uh, Sermon on the Mount, our fullest account of that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is interested in issues of the heart. He's interested in what's going on inside of us. He's interested in inner motivation. You, very very familiarly, you remember this. You've heard it said, you should not commit murder, Jesus says, But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty. If you call your brother a horrible title, raka, which is Aramaic, it's a it's a horrible, derisive term, or even if you call him a fool, you're guilty. Well, wow, that is a far higher standard of that commandment from the moral law of God. So it's not only what we're going to do externally, it's what's going on inside our heart. And so this gives us now a little sense, this gives us now a little sense of what Paul is after here. His prayer is that we be strengthened with the supernatural power of God through the Holy Spirit indwells us to deal with issues inside us, issues of our heart, issues of our will, issues of our motivation. Because the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is interested in internal righteousness as well as external righteousness. The Pharisees were only interested in external stuff. They're only interested in putting on the facade. And yet Jesus would say to them, you you are the blind leading the blind. You're You're a whitewashed sepulcher, nice and white and clean on the outside, inside you're dead. Well, that's not sanctification. That's not God conforming us into the image of His Son. He's changing us from the inside out. So that our external acts reflect our internal transformation, which again is what the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It begins with the eight Beatitudes. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount now. It begins with the eight Beatitudes and just develops it from there. And so this, this is an astonishing reminder that we need the power of God for that inner transformation which produces the outer works of good and pleasing to the Lord that Paul discusses in Romans 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2. And so as you go again to the structure of this prayer, part one of the prayer is that we will, because Paul was praying for the Ephesians, but we can use this as a prayer for ourselves, that we will be strengthened with that power that comes through God's Spirit of inner transformation, which is part of the process of sanctification. So it's it's marvelous. It's a reminder of how deep-seated God's work of transformation is. It's not just the outward facade. It's inner transformation. And that's why, in my view, as I study the Bible, God is far more interested in the transformation of the inner being of humans than He is just the outward. Because if all you're focusing on is the outward, that's not transformational change. All right. Now I've said a lot, but this is this is quite an extraordinary prayer. That I, I don't know if we give enough of focus to this in our preaching and teaching of how how total and comprehensive the transformational work of God is in our lives once we put our faith in his Son. He's changing us from the inside out, and that's part of what Paul, he wants us to be strengthened so that that can occur through the power of the Holy Spirit. The second part of his prayer, part two, again, if you look at the chart that I gave you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, and that little Greek verb dwell, it literally could be translated, may be in at home in. So this isn't something alien, it's now an intimate and remarkable personal matter of transformation may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, that gets into verse 18. Okay, now, Christ may dwell in your hearts you think well, well wait a minute i i thought that i had already taken jesus into my heart and well th- this idea of of jesus dwelling in your heart remember heart in the bible both the old testament and the new testament really is a metaphor it's a figure of speech that that focuses on the center of our will the center of our being that relates to the, to the motivational issues. So you see a parallel between part one of his prayer and part two of his prayer, that the Holy Spirit who indwells us and will use his supernatural power to transform us from the inside out so that Jesus may dwell in our hearts, that he, and, and pleasing Jesus, and being motivated by loving Jesus, is the determinative factor in our decision-making, in our will, in our motivation. Because in, in a sense, Jesus already dwells in our heart, because that's part of putting your faith in Christ and him, him dwelling on us, the intimacy and fellowship, that koinonia word that's so wonderful in 1 John, the Epistle of 1 John. But it's, it's, it's related to this idea, There is this conscious understanding that Jesus dwells in my life. My my intimacy and relationship with him is one of extraordinary fellowship. And therefore, he's in the center of my heart. He's in the center of my will. He's in the center of my motivation. He's in the center of why I do what I do. And so when you start to unpack it from that vantage point, I put it in blue there in the brackets, that he would become the controlling force in our life. What is your primary motivation to walk in loving obedience with Jesus and please him? That's a good answer. But that only can be an honest answer if Jesus is, is dwelling in your heart, if he is the vital center, the controlling force in your life, not in some mystical sense, but in a very pragmatic, practical sense. I seek to live a life where I walk in loving obedience with Jesus. Paul is going to talk about that in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, one of the major themes of chapters 4, 5, and 6 but that J- Jesus is not the center of our lives. And we, we desire and seek to please him. We desire and seek to walk in loving obedience with him. And that's why it, you know, it's a very, very famous book written in the 19th century by a man named Charles Sheldon. It was called, you know, What, what Would Jesus Do? It, it's asking that question. If, if Jesus were here, what would he do? Well, the, the point is Jesus is here and to ask him lord what do you want me to do lord what is the right judgment to make here lord what and as you are in his word as you're in that conversational prayer life with Christ there's this conscious awareness day by day 24/7 that Jesus is the vital center of your life he is the controlling force of your life he's dwelling in your heart that becomes then that center of your decision making, your will, your motivation, you no longer seek to please yourself, you now seek to please Christ. I'm unpacking and adding lots and lots of phrases that appear throughout the rest of the New Testament that helps to embellish and explain what Paul is really saying here. But it's part two of his prayer. And it's a it's it's a reminder of how this transformational work of God in what Paul calls in Romans 6 sanctification. involves the Holy Spirit who is giving us the power of transforming us from the inside out, our inner being, so that Jesus then would become the controlling force of your life, your will, your motivation, and your decision making, and why you do what you do. And then the third part of the prayer, again looking at our chart here, That rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to infinitive, to comprehend and to know. So let's look at this first, being rooted and grounded in love. Now, they are two agricultural figures to speak, agricultural metaphors. And the idea is now, you know, Jesus is not just on the surface of our life. He is deeply rooted in our lives. Paul writes in the book of Colossians, let your roots sink deeply into Jesus so that you are drawing on the strength and power of that intimacy and fellowship with him. And so it's exactly the same idea here, an agricultural metaphor, but your roots have sunk deeply into Jesus and his love so that you are grounded in Jesus and his love, and drawing the spiritual nutrients that you need for part one and part two of the prayer, so that then you may begin to have the strength. It's really kind of an unusual term to use, but it has very much this military dynamic strength, which indicates this isn't some superficial comprehension, superficial knowledge. This is deep-seated comprehension and knowledge, because it's a prayer to God, give me the strength to comprehend, give me the strength to know. Well, what are we to comprehend? To comprehend, you could flesh that out, truly understand, with all the saints. So this isn't just for the spiritual elite. This isn't just for five people in a whole universe that will figure it out. This is for all the saints. This is for everyone who names the name of Jesus. What is the breadth, length, height, and depth of what? Because there's no prepositional phrase to define what he's talking about. Well, the governing, the governing focus of this is that beginning phrase, according to the riches of his glory. So what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of the glory of the riches of God? And we need the supernatural enablement to be able to truly understand the breadth, length, height, and depth of the riches of God and his glory. How long does it take you and I to be able to comprehend this? the rest of our lives? In my view, I believe this continues on into eternity, because I believe in eternity you and I will go on learning but we will no longer have the noetic effect of sin. Noetic means that the effect of sin and how we think about things. That'll be gone in our new, resurrected, glorified bodies. But this, this is going to go, continue. And then secondly, that, that strength and that power that's, that's rooted in God that we're praying for, to know. And that word know there is a, a term of intimacy not just factual, superficial understanding, but to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, and that little phrase, surpasses knowledge, means this isn't just something that's in your head. It's also that 18-inch journey down to your heart, as a little Baptist preacher used to say, but that you you now, it's, 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 it's full-orbed, to complete understanding of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's experiential, it's intimate, it's personal, it's not just factual. And so th- this is just a, this is a remarkable prayer. I mean, when you when you really take it apart, as we tried to do here, he's praying for three things strengthen with the power for the inner transformation dwelling, the Christ is dwelling in your hearts, is the the controlling force of your life, your will, your decision-making, your motivation, so that you can then have that supernatural capacity to truly comprehend the riches of God in His glory, and to intimately and personally know the love of Jesus, which surpasses knowledge. Now, both of those, that infinitive to comprehend and the infinitive to know, is something that is continuous. You and I do not achieve, okay, I've got it. Now I've comprehended it all. What's the next assignment? No, 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 no. It is an ongoing. You and I learn this as we walk with God for the rest of our lives, as as we continue to begin to really grasp, in our minds and in our hearts, the riches of God His glory. And the love of Jesus, which surpasses just knowledge. And I think, you know, an an old friend of mine used to say, every day you fall in love with Jesus again. Every day, your love—using this language, I I know you understand what I mean by this— Every day your love affair with Jesus deepens. Every day your love for Jesus deepens. Every day your comprehension of, of the, the riches of God and, and the, the, the His attributes and who He is in all His glory. Oh my, you and I have only begun to comprehend that. When we get to heaven and we spend eternity with Him, And we're going to see him, we're going to walk with him, but we're still going to be growing in our comprehension and understanding of God. It's because now it's the finite, you and I, trying to understand and comprehend the infinite. And then he adds, just like you can hardly believe he adds more to this. But there is an overall result, let's put it this way, an overall intended result to this prayer. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Will we become like God? No, no, that's not what it means. It's the fullness of God in terms of what in doctrine we call His communicable attributes. The love of God. The grace of God the peace of God. All of those—that's why communicable attributes, the attributes you and I share with God. God has a capacity to love. We have the capacity of love. But we never love the way God wants us to love until we come to know Christ, and through the transformational work of God's Spirit, we begin to love the way God loves—a self-sacrificial, other-centered, serving love. I'm using that just as an example. And so when you tie all this together, again, this is such a nice way to look at it. You see three-part prayer requests that are focused totally on the sanctifying grace of God at work in our life. That sanctifying grace, which begins with power that transforms us from the inside out through the Holy Spirit with Jesus dwelling at home in our hearts so that our will our decision making our motivations etc are centered on Jesus and then the strength that supernatural capacity to comprehend and to know the infinite and the eternal with the result that we are becoming like God we are beginning to evidence the attributes of our Heavenly Father. One of the the most magnificent, those of you who have had children, and and you know what I mean, is to to see, not the negative, but to see the positive aspects of your life reflected in your children. The things you wanted your children to learn, you see them evidencing that. Our Heavenly Father, who is perfect in all of His dealings, has a goal for us, that we will be transformed into the image of His Son. That's, that's Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's God's goal for us. Paul has just explained to us what you and I should be praying, that God will accomplish that objective in our lives, that we will be filled with the fullness of God. We are becoming like Jesus. That's God's goal in sanctification, and I just gave you three scriptural references for that. All right. Uh, I spent a lot of time on this prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament because it is a prayer that zeroes in on what sanctification is all about. It's marvelous. Now, I, I'm not done yet, but any questions? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, got, you go I, got, I got
1: a couple for you. Um, <clears throat> when um, uh you said this, the word strengthen is a fairly militant term. In translated mili-
0: military-type term, yes.
1: Isn't he also then inferring that, given the cultural situation there, that you, you need to take a defensive posture towards being a Christian? That it will not be easy. You have to be – I mean, they understand warfare. They understand the citizen-state environment at that time, right? Um, and they also understand the cultural differences. So I think it kind of speaks to them in several different directions, does it not?
0: It does. I mean, that's a, that's insightful uh, comment and question, Glenn, I mean, because that is, uh, that, that is part of, I think, the reason why Paul often uses the language that's associated with warfare or, or military exercises or things like that. You see it, for example, as we will study later on in Ephesians 6, that we're in a spiritual battle. You know, we need to put on the whole armor of God, etc. That we will study in six, ten, and following, and so that's very much a part of it. And this is this is part of our of our defensive uh, strategies. If I, fo- I can follow that military metaphor, it's part of our defensive strategy to be able to stand fast against all of the evil uh, darts of the evil one, as well as our enemies, the the flesh and the world, our other two enemies. So, yeah, I mean, you're you're right. That's that's really insightful. That's, That's exactly right. Fleshing out that military metaphor involves us. That's right.
1: But it seems to parallel also Peter's warning to who he was writing to that it's not easy. That's right. I mean, that's why
0: all of these... Well, when I say all, I mean, these three parts of the prayer, we, we are to take this serious <laughs> because this to, to the work of transformation, the, the, the process of sanctification is not a cakewalk. And if you want to be reminded of how difficult it is, read Romans 7, because there's Paul's personal commentary on this process. I do what I don't want to do. I can't do what I want to do. And that summarizes quite in a quite penetrating fashion that this is not easy, and you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need that daily con- conscious awareness of Jesus at the center of your life, your will, your heart, your motivation, et cetera, and that strength to daily comprehend and, and and know. And that's part of that. I mean, the only way we're going to do that, to comprehend and know, is to be in God's Word and to be to be in a church situation where we're being taught God's Word, in, in my view, in an expository preaching way. Otherwise, you're, you're just being fed pablum, you're being fed a bunch of superficial stuff that's not going to give you the strength to comprehend and to know. Now, I mean, you're okay. right. Nowhere in the Bible guess, does sanctification is sanctification presented as something easy. Well, it is presented but, as the only way to live our lives. Because when you consider the alternative, then you begin to say, this is the only way I want to live. You were going to go on, Glenn.
1: Well, that's that's the tough part, right? So today, you have a lot of people that are not saved, but they go to church, and they think the mechanism why well, go to church, so I'm I'm good, right? Um, and they don't really understand the difference of allowing them into your heart that that's what gives you the strength to live that live as a Christian. They, they they don't a lot of a lot of people don't get that Catholics don't a lot of Protestants don't get that need. Well, that. yeah, I mean that
0: that that's true and it but it's often in a, a crisis that's how i came to know the lord it's in a crisis of life or in a a, a serious set of developments in life that you turn to the lord and begin to understand you're you're your dead of sin what you've done etc and only the lord jesus can take care of that and again, you know, I, I know you, you, some of you have been around my classes for a long time, so you know I really hammer hard at the difference between justification and sanctification. Right. And justification is the definitional word, we're now declared righteous, that's our position, we're secure and safe in that position. Um, but And it's a gift that we've accepted, we understand what we're doing, and that begins that process of sanctification, the difference between the event and the process. And, the, and this, is where, this is where I think people get confused sometimes, and it depends on how they're presented with the gospel, but they then think, well, I come to know Christ and everything's going to be fine. No, you come to know Christ. You're in a new position. Now God looks at you through the lens of His Son. He sees the righteousness of His Son. You're dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. But now, now the battle begins. And that's the theme of Ephesians 4 through 6. Now your walk is differently, but it's it's a battle. And your enemies are—we read about this at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3— your enemies had been the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your enemies— in the process of sanctification, are still the world, the flesh, and the devil, but now you have the supernatural power of God through His indwelling Holy Spirit to deal both defensively and offensively. To use your metaphor, Glenn, uh, to deal with that, and that's what the that's what the whole armor of God's all about. There are offensive parts and there are defensive parts to the whole armor, but that's what we have to understand what's going on in our life. And our lives are like this, it's up and down, but God is consistently with us, and God never gives up on us. God never lets us go. And it is in that process of the ups and downs of living in a fallen, broken world where we learn dependence on Him, and we learn what we studied when we did the book of James, chapter 1, verse 2, it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because that's God's d- program of developing your character and your inner being. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just begin to understand these things, but that's that that verse 18, that strength to comprehend and know what's going on. <laughs> and once you understand it, then th- the struggle is easier. Only in the sense that I know the end; I'm going to be with the Lord for eternity. I know the beginning when I experience the blessing of justification. But I understand now what God is doing. He's transforming it. And if you know anything about transformation, if you're going to be an athlete and you want to compete, that method of transforming your body so you can compete is not easy. It's not. It's hard work. Well, that's why Paul uses the metaphor of a runner. If you're training for battle, a farmer, being a farmer's hard work. You got the goal in mind, the harvest. But to get from planting to the goal of the harvest is hard work. And I mean, it's just so it's 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 a way of seeing and understanding what God is doing in our lives. And if you get the difference between justification and sanctification, you're well on your way to understanding. All right. I've I've talked a lot here. Anything else?
2: Yeah. Jim, on the point of the, the heart, there's another what would another word that you might use in relationship to. Uh, heart, because in verse 16, he says that, that he would grant you um, to be strengthened, it's kind of skipping there, with a power of his spirit in the inner man. What other word would you use for, um, for heart, for man?
0: Well, yeah, uh, the heart actually appears in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart inner being—I I, I tried to explain that, maybe I didn't do a very good job of explaining it—but your inner being is is everything inside of you that governs and determines decision-making processes, motivations, uh, you know, impulses, and all of that. The heart, as he specifically is in verse 17, it's very difficult to define that. But normally, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, heart— is a, an interchangeable word for our will, and it, you know, it, it's, is it, your will is being transformed, that means, and that's the whole point of verse 17, that Jesus is the controlling force, the motivating center, the decision-making center of why you do what you do. And so, and this is the language that Paul uses, I think, for example, I'm thinking, for example, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're being transformed to do that, which is the honorable, acceptable, righteous, pleasing thing to God. And so that that controlling force in your life now is, I'm seeking to please Jesus. My will, my decision-making, my motivation are all governed by, is this pleasing to the Lord? I'm walking and loving, and this is what he's going to be talking about in chapters four, five, and six, as as we will see. I don't know if I've explained what you're after, Fred, or not, but I think that's the. I, best I think I you
2: did. You know, you mentioned uh, athletes, and you can see, and and word I would think of would be spirit, because sometimes <clears throat> a team goes on the offense, and it just, you know, they. <clears throat> twenty points; it really defeats the other team's spirit. I mean, you can just see that they've lost their will, maybe to to compete. So that's um, that's what I was thinking of, you know, in that regard. But uh, yeah. Well,
0: and because we are, and you know, following on Glenn's question as well, which we stress this offensive defensive element of our, our trans- sanctification process, uh, it is very easy to become disheartened. Is very well, I shouldn't say easy, but it can happen where we're disheartened, we're ready to throw in the towel. And one thinks, for example, in in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19, Elijah had this fantastic, triumphant victory on Mount Carmel. And what's the next chapter? He wants God to take his life because he's gone into despair. I mean, that when I preached on that a couple of months ago, that's what I focused on. All of us. Experience exactly what Elijah experienced. Now you and I aren't doing battle with the gods of Baal on Mount Carmel, but we're doing we're doing the battle in a fallen, broken world where the spiritual warfare is real, and it is it is opportunities for us to be in despair, to be disheartened. Some of the great individuals of the faith, and I'm going to name them: Martin Luther, um, John Wesley. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great British pastor in in the 19th century, all of them struggled with depression, every one of them, deep bouts of depression and despair. Uh, Spurgeon would go, he he would get into such, such a a, a point of depression and despair, he'd take a month and go down to the the shores of uh, Marseille down in France along the Mediterranean, and just regroup and refocus using the scriptures, prayer, and so on to get out of this. So, I mean, to have those kind of struggles is not not abnormal in a sense. It is part, we are dealing with a battle, and, and, and depending on a lot of different aspects of our life and how we're made and what's in our genes and all of that, we can struggle with some very deep-seated things. And so it's but it's it's getting out of that. And this is what this is the point of Paul's prayer here. That's what I'm, I'm trying to get across. This prayer that Paul is stressing here, these three parts that I've tried to use this to help you really grasp this, is all about you and I dealing with the ups and downs of life. And we need the strength of the power of God's Spirit to transform us from the inside out. that's transformation. To keep Jesus at the center of our life so that His pleasing Him and honoring Him is the controlling force in why we do what we do. So that we can continue to be able to have the capacity to truly comprehend and truly know God, what He's doing, how I fit, and all of the riches of His glory. It takes a lifetime to come to terms with all that. But this is a prayer for us to overcome the ups and downs of living in a fallen, broken world. Thank and you. This, this causes Paul, and it's really quite wonderful, isn't it? In verses 20 and 20, it causes Paul to burst into one of the greatest doxologies of Scripture. I mean, he just can't help himself. Now, to him he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that work within us, see, previous verses, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the great doxology. doxology means praise, one of the great doxologies of Scripture. But it is, it's at the end of these three chapters, but particularly this prayer that he's just prayed, that helps us to understand this is what you and I need every day. This isn't a once-for-all prayer. This is a prayer that we should be focusing on and thinking about and bringing for the Lord and praying for others. We need this for what the Lord wants to do in our lives, that Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power. That's the standard of Him doing what is above what we can. The standard is His power, but His power is at work within us which he's just explained. And to him, therefore, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And you read the book of Revelation, that's exactly what's going to happen. For all eternity, we will be praising the glory of God in what he has done for us, in us, and then through us as we we live our lives. Well, uh, you I've talked a lot about this. This is one of my favorite passages in Paul's writings because it hits so hard at the importance of what God is doing in His sanctifying grace. Let's move on. Now, you have a copy of this in the slides um, that uh, were sent to you. I I want you to see something. I'd like you to memorize this chart. Uh, I'll give you a blank sheet of paper next week, and I'm going to ask you to fill it in. But I want you to understand the connection between chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians and chapters 4, 5, 6 of Ephesians. It lays out one of the fundamental principles of God's Word. Sound doctrine produces godly living. Chapters 1 through 3, now we just finished that, so you would agree with that. Chapters 1 through 3 is sound, heavy doctrine. You yeah, have verses, verses 4 through Um, uh, 4 through 14 of chapter 1, that's one of the great passages on God's Trinitarian nature. And you have that fantastic prayer in in 14 through, well, I'm not going to go through all that, but you, you just go back and review all that we've studied. Yeah, boy, that's sound, doc. Remember, sound, the Greek word for sound is healthy. That which is conducive to spiritual health. It's Paul's favorite phrase that's used 15 times in the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But sound doctrine produces the living. And so what Paul does, and you also have this chart in your, in your packet that was sent to you just today, that here is a way, it's the way I'm going to do it, here is a way to outline chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians. And Paul uses the metaphor of walk. And it's, 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 I love that. I'm so glad he does that, because he describes the walk of the—excuse me, he describes the life of a Christian as a walk. And, and the Greek word is peripeteo. It means the normal, ordinary walk of life. you become a Christian. You're in the process of God's sanctifying power. He is transforming you into image of his Son. Here is what your walk now looks like. Let me, I should put that another way. Here is what your walk should look like. This is what God is going to be doing. And so, if you look at that, first of all, walk of unity, and he's going to anchor that theme of unity in the Trinity. As God is one, diverse, three persons, but he's one, so we, diverse in all of our ways, are still one, a walk of holiness. As God is holy, we are to be holy. A walk of love. First Corinthians thirteen this is the He's going to have four verses, and then walking in the light, which is really quite powerful, actually. Which he's going to use that metaphor of light that Jesus uses, and then finally the walk of wisdom. And then when he's done with that, in verses six. 10 through the really the end of the book, he's going to talk about spiritual warfare and the importance of every day putting on the whole armor of God. But at the rate we're going, we'll get to that in August. So as we move through this, I want to take our time to, to look at each one of these these paragraphs of uh, and this is all about sanctification. This is not about justification. The assumption is you've been justified. You've put your faith in Christ. Now, this is Paul speaking, now I want to explain to you what your, what, what I've just prayed for you. Strengthened all those things that you and I just went through in that marvelous prayer. Now, this, this is what it's going to look like. And so, as, as we go back again to this little chart, the sound doctrine that he has taught in chapters 1 through 3 is now fleshed out practically in how you live. So, the sound doctrine, understanding who God is, understanding what God is doing, understanding his attributes, is now going to be manifested in how you live your life. All right? Now, are you with me on what I'm saying here? And really, it's not what I'm saying. This is how Paul's organizing his book. Okay? You got it? That's a good thing to remember. Sound doctrine produces godly living which to me stresses the importance of a church that teaches sound doctrine. If a church is not teaching sound doctrine, and I'm not being judgmental, I'm just trying to reflect what the New Testament says, the church is not doing its full job. So with all that said, let's look at the first part. Now, chapter four begins with this... Exhortation, I therefore. Now, the word therefore, and that's true in English as well as in the Greek language, it's a connector. It's a structural marker. It's connecting something that has been said with something that is about to be said. Because this is all true, therefore, this is what follows. And so the therefore is that structural marker connecting chapters 1, 2, and 3 with chapters 4, 5, and 6. What I have just taught you, it should affect how you live. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord— remember, this is one of the prison epistles that Paul wrote when he was in prison in Rome— a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk. There's that word. If, if you do things like this in your Bible— You ought to circle that or underline it or something because that's going to be a key structure mark for the rest of the book. Because each time he uses that word walk, he's going to be talking about another dimension of what is our life supposed supposed to look like now? And again, that word walk is peteo. It's the normal, ordinary walk. It's not extraordinary. It's not super. It's not only... A handful of spiritually elite people ever know this is for everyone who has put their faith in Christ. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The Greek word for call is kaleo. Obviously, it makes sense. That's one of Paul's favorite words for salvation. And so, worthy of your calling. What calling? The calling of salvation what he talked about in chapter 1, that God chose us, God predestined predetermined our destiny to be in his family. That's the calling of God upon your life. That calling of God upon your life is consistent now with your new position. You're dead, buried, and resurrected in Christ. Your new position is you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, all those things we've talked about before. But he's laying out the practical outworkings of this profound theological truth. Now, what is the first element of this walk? With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And so he's... (laughs) He's laying out, and it's it's pretty, pretty categorical here. You are different. You are now a human being that can only be explained by the supernatural. And so what he chooses, and I, I don't know why he chooses these, but he chooses to focus on four virtues. He could have focused on nine virtues, like the fruit of the Spirit, but he chooses just four. So your walk can only be explained by supernatural virtues. Virtue number one is humility. Now that is a term that's all over the Bible, and I think You're familiar with the term because, I mean, it's the best way to translate that Greek word. It's really only a good way to translate that Greek word, but humility. And humility is that virtue where I'm dependent. I'm dependent on someone or something else. Humility is the distinct opposite of pride. Humility is is the... juxtaposition from that human characteristic of hubris, an arrogant, defiant pride. Humility is that virtue that philosophers have exalted for thousands of years, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to achieve it. Aristotle said that the great plays of the ancient world by Sophocles and Aeschylus and all these, because they're all about the fallacy of pride, all about how pride harms us. He said it cleanses us, our emotions, so we're able to live a godly life, a humble life, I'm sorry, is what he said. But that doesn't help because the moment you leave the theater, you're really thinking how great you are that you're able to attend the theater, and you're all of a sudden no longer humble. The humility is what Paul speaks about in Philippians 2, 5 through 10. Our model for humility is Jesus. He surrendered his rights. He left the glory of heaven, added to his deity humanity for a purpose. He humbled himself. And Paul is saying your walk is a walk not of arrogant, defiant pride, It's a walk of dependence. If you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Who said that? Jesus. Humility is a life of dependence. A dependence on what we just read about in the prayer that Paul prayed. That prayer is a prayer of dependence. I can't do this on my own. I need to be strengthened by the power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to transform me from the inside out. That's humility. I need to have Jesus at the center of my life so that my will, my decision-making, my motivations, my my impulses are all governed by what does Jesus want me to do. That's humility. That's what he's talking about. Secondly is gentleness. Absolutely impossible words translate. To bring it from the Greek into English is very difficult. Honestly, it's very, very difficult. But the the idea of gentleness is an interpersonal relationship word. It's how you deal with other human beings. So some have translated it being considerate. Some have translated it being kind. But it seems to zero in particularly... I am very considerate, very kind, very gentle in avenging wrongs that have been done to me. That seems to be the sense of that Greek term, which again, nobody's naturally like that. Those old bumper stickers that I used to see on trucks I don't get mad, I get even. That's not gentleness. It's the opposite of gentleness. And so, it's again, it's really a difficult word to translate and get the full meaning of it. But it's an interpersonal relationship word. It's how you deal with people who cross you, offend you, hurt you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not seeking justice, but you are doing it in such a way where it's considerate, kind, and gentle in dealing with people. You've come to know Christ. You want yeah. them to.
2: Are, aren't we modeling God in that sense, mm-hmm. where while we were his en- enemies, he dealt with us that way and he forgave us. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to push that forward, kind of in, uh, indicating that same attitude, kind of like the model where the guy who was owed a, a little bit of money was forgiven a lot. And then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. No, that, I'm glad you put it that way, Rush that's exactly right that's why it's so hard to put it into human terms because it is it is modeling what the lord has done for us in saving us and so on oh my goodness it's almost 10 out all right um help to remind me to pick up with the word patience in verse uh verse one there so well we got started are you you all with me you understand what we're doing here this is we're going to be in this for a long time because this This is great thank you Yes, it's a practical outworkings of what it means to walk with God. So I hope it'll be a blessing. Well, I'm going to pray and let you go. I've got to get to my next appointment. So let me pray here. Lord, thank you. This is a this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. That prayer of Paul. It, it just hits at the heart of sanctifying grace. What you want for us, and how you want us to be involved in praying for this, the work of transformation in our lives. Lord, help us to just understand this process of sanctification and why sometimes it is a struggle because we're, we're putting away the old and replacing it with the new. As you renew our minds, renew our will, renew our hearts, set it in the power of your spirit in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all you've done for us at the cross. We're going to celebrate that next Good Friday. And then we're going to remember the power and glory of the resurrection where Jesus paid the penalty for us sealed that. Now that penalty has been paid. The offer of grace and faith, the gift of salvation is on the table for all humanity to pick it up. Lord, we just pray that people uh, by, the, by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions will come to saving faith in Christ, as it's the only answer to the desperate situations of the human condition. Thank you for paying that price for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, according to Romans 1, raising your Son through the Spirit to glory. We, we will forever praise you for this grand truth. Thank you, too, for each one of these men. Help them in their lives. Help them in what they do, in their relationship with others. Help them to be good representatives of you as they're developing more and more to become like Jesus, which is the goal you have for each one of us. We are men of faith and men of strength who represent you well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you. You bet. Take care. Thank you, gentlemen. Good job. Thank you. Have a good week. week. You too. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.